Welcome to the Moz Monthly Podcast. Thorough discussion and in-depth information about the news, stories, and trends related to emergency medical services in Michigan. The Moz Monthly Podcast is brought to you by the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services. Here's your host, Moz Executive Director, Angela Madden. Welcome back to the Moz Monthly Podcast. I'm Angela Madden, your host. Joining us today, we have EMS Chief from Richmond Lennox EMS, Jeff White, and Brett Marr from Much More Harrington Smalling Associates, a multi-client lobbying firm from downtown Lansing. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Good. Having a a great day. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for having me. Well, wonderful. We're glad you're here. Jeff, also, you happen to be the Legislative Committee Chair for the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services for Moz. I understand you've held that position for quite some time now. Uh, Give us a little background. How'd you get tagged for that job? So I uh, lose a little bit of track of time, but I got involved with the Legislative Committee prior to actually being on the Moz board and uh, had a developed good relationships with my local uh, representatives. Some of the Moss board members had started to ask me to uh, engage them in various issues in regards to the ambulance industry and in regards to EMS. And to make a long story short, I then was elected to the Moss board itself. And during a Moss strategic planning meeting uh, some years ago, an old friend and mentor, Dale Berry, cornered me in the hallway and asked if I would consider taking over as the legislative chair. And I told him that I, I would. And, you know, the rest they say is history. Well, we're glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Brett Marr, you joined MHSA in 2003, I believe. And you and I actually go back quite a bit before I even joined Moz. I actually believe you were on the opposite side of multiple issues that I was working on. I like to tell everyone in downtown Lansing, it's about time you were on the right side. I would say it's probably the the flip of that, actually. I've been with the firm now for 17 years. I worked with Moss, some of Angela's predecessors in my former role uh, in state government. I did a lot of healthcare issues for Governor Engler and worked with a number of the board members back then, some of which have retired, some which have still uh, stayed on in leadership roles within the association. So I got familiar with Moss early on and what it is to be in the EMS world. I've got parents that are both from uh, healthcare backgrounds. So I luckily have not experienced any of our services provided by Moss members yet, but I do enjoy going out and doing a ride along time to time. Well, thank you for joining us. We're glad to have you here. And Moss is, uh, is very happy to have you on our team. Jeff, let's turn the conversation just a little bit. As someone who's been involved in Moss advocacy efforts for quite some time, both from from the association level and then individually on the grassroots level for yourself. Talk about the purpose, Moz's purpose, Moz's goals in, in having these advocacy efforts and our goal in, in lobbying. So, you know, I think it's really important that, and, and I think our board supports the idea that Moz really is the voice for the emergency medical services industry. We're focused on EMS and we're focused on community paramedicine and we're focused on health and safety of our of our citizens and our communities and our, and our healthcare institutions. And so it is only natural that Moss is that voice because we were singularly focused on health and patient care, you know, related issues where there are uh, EMS organizations that have multiple responsibilities. And and in some cases, the patient, if you will, can get lost in that. That's an important point, Jeff. And you also alluded to ensuring that we have that communication with our legislators. Do you think most EMS agencies have had those interactions with their local legislators? What is 
was your opinion on that? I think we're doing a better job of it uh, through Brett's office and, and through your office, Angela, that we are reaching out and making those communications, not just when there's an issue of, you know, particular to EMS, but really when you're in your local communities and have the opportunity to just meet with these folks, uh, they have other concerns, our legislators, that they need your support on as well. And so it goes both ways, if you will. If, if you need help from your legislator, it's good if you've been able to support them on issues that they may have uh, in your community that, that are equally important to their interests. So Jeff, how would you recommend an EMS agency leader that maybe doesn't know their state legislators or does not know them very well? What would be your suggestion for getting to know them better? Certainly, you can't be lost on not being visible in your community. And many of these legislators attend a lot of local community fundraisers and and other events. And, And while that fundraiser in and by itself might not be a part of your organization's direct mission, being there and having the opportunity to take a legislator aside and talk to them a little bit about your industry and your concerns for your industry and, and your concerns for public health are important. They, they want to hear those things and they want to generally know how they can make their communities healthier and safer. But you have to become the advocate for those things and, and sometimes catching them at a fundraiser, more social gathering is exactly the way to do that. The other way to, to do it is to keep an eye on your legislator's calendar when they're in district. Frequently, uh, these legislators have a coffee time uh, where they'll be at a local library or a, a senior center or even maybe the local city hall and they'll they'll be doing a, a morning coffee meeting uh, where they just want to hear from their constituents. What I've found when I attend one of these, they're not often very well attended. They're looking for people to bring them information and, and, and concerns and questions. And so it, it's often a very easy time to get with your legislator and just introduce yourself, uh, tell them a little bit about your organization, your agency, your employees, and, and those you're called the servant, you know, maybe even consider hosting one of those events or at least bringing the legislator or his staff by so that they can see firsthand a little bit more of what it is you do. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Brett, Jeff just gave us some really good examples on how we can institute a grassroots lobbying effort, grassroots advocacy effort in our own local communities. How has grassroots, how has advocacy, how has lobbying changed in our current term limited environment? That's a great question, and Jeff touched on some of it. And one of the things to keep in mind is with term limits in Michigan now, House members serve six years, Senate members serve eight years. Generally, most Senate members have some House experience. Most of the time, most House members come with some type of local government background, whether it be township board, school board, county commission, township supervisor, something like that. So they have some experience. So you've got the opportunity when you're active in your community, like Jeff suggested, to get to learn some of these people before before they even get the state rep name or the state senator name. That would be ideal uh, to have that relationship prior to them coming to state office. Because once they come to state office, and I joke about this with members on the Moss board from time to time, every now and then with term limits, your state rep is going to end up being the chair of the budget committee or the chair of the health committee or the speaker or the majority leader. And at that point in time, you need to have that relationship prior to them getting into that leadership position. Jeff talked about offering to do a couple of different things, which I would agree with and want to hit on. And that is 
they're always looking for unique places to do coffee hours or community events or a town hall. Uh, obviously, in today's COVID environment, the town halls aren't exactly the way to go. But once we get back to some sense of normalcy, that's something that we can go upon. The other thing that they you have to keep in mind is most public officials have a natural curiosity. They want to be perceived to know a lot about everything that's going on in their community. So anytime you can help educate them on something uh, before it happens, that makes them look smarter, helps them be more prepared in their community, and ultimately helps them in their re-election efforts, which is their ultimate goal. Thanks, Brett. Has there ever been anyone with EMS experience that have served in the state legislature? We've had a number of, well, not direct paramedics or EMTs or managers. We've had a number of folks that went through that route that then became a nurse uh, or moved on to something else. Uh, Representative Jeff Yark out of Macomb County right now was uh, employed by a number of different agencies down in Macomb County. Uh, He's kind of our go-to right now on some of these issues. Um, So we've had a number of people that have had experience with it. We have in more rural areas, especially the Republican district areas, a lot of those will have a uh, EMS subsidy or millage. uh, So they've had some involvement in the oversight of their local EMS agency or the subsidy that goes to the local provider. You make a good point, Brett. Do you believe that there's a difference in how we get to know our state legislators based on where we live or the type of community that we live in in the state? Yeah, I think the the rural area is a little more difficult because generally with a rural community, uh, that legislator is covering more acreage. I mean, literally more acreage. And so they have like like state Senate, there's two state centers that have more than 10 counties in their district. That's a lot of space to cover. Uh, a little more, an urban or suburban area is a little more compact. They may only have one agency that they interact with, but some of those larger uh, districts are going to have multiple agencies. And that's where you get to one of other Jeff's points from earlier. And that is sometimes when you've got multiple agencies in the same area serving an area that has a state rep or state senator, getting them together with that state rep or state senator is more efficient for the state rep or senator, but also gives you some dedicated time with that person as well. Catching them at coffee hours is great, but it's only a quick five or 10 minute conversation. Community events might only be a two minute conversation, but really having them out uh, to your facility for a tour or hosting something for them uh, in your facility is the way to go. You get a little more dedicated time. So I'm hearing that someone who's looking to get to know their legislator to advocate on behalf of their own agency might need to have a multi-pronged approach. It sounds like you need to have maybe a two minute elevator speech prepared. You need to be prepared to maybe pick up the phone, have a lengthier conversation about a more specific issue. And then, and probably most importantly, from what both of you have said, to invite that legislator, community leader directly to their agency, give them a tour of your headquarters, give them a tour of a truck, and maybe even do a ride along. Absolutely. I mean, that is, I've yet to have a legislator uh, that has been on a tour with us somewhere that didn't want their picture taking sitting in the front seat to one of the rigs. That's just something that's good for them. They use in their promotion pieces in the community, whether it's for election or just mailers back into the district. Uh, on social media, a number of our agencies agencies have pretty active social media outlets, as does Moss. And that's something that we always like to really push with folks is show them what it looks like. Again, they usually joke that they've never been in the back of a truck before, which is fine. Uh, but you're showing them all the equipment that's there so that when we handle and talk about some of the issues we'll talk about later in this session, you've laid that foundation, that educational background. They have some frame of reference. Our ultimate goal as the lobbyists for Moss and for Moss members is when an issue pops up in a committee on the floor or a 
discussion with a colleague, with a House member or Senate member that they think, oh, I have to call Jeff White on this and get his opinion. That's what we want this relationship to yield, that whenever they hear EMS, ambulance, first responders, they think I have to call my local EMS provider first. Thank you. I'm going to switch topics just slightly. Moss has had like every trade association, like every lobby group, interest group, whatever you would like to call it, um, has had legislative wins and we've had some losses. I'm not going to call them fails. Let's talk a little bit about the wins. The QAP, the Quality Assurance Assessment Program, Jeff, was a program that took a decade to get passed through the legislature. Tell me a little bit about the QAP, what it means to agencies around the state. What does the QAP mean or what is it doing? How is it working for every EMS agency around Michigan? You know, Angela, that's that's just a a great question and it it just speaks to the dedication and commitment to MOS members over the years. This is a process, a project that was going long before Jeff White's uh, involvement in MOS at any level. It was predate Brett, but may predate you as well. So we inherited this, I think, to some degree. And what it centered around was MOS historically had lobbied for increased funding from state Medicaid, understanding that they had lobbied for that for, I think, in excess of 20 years. EMS agencies in the state uh, were literally losing money when they transported patients that had Medicaid to and from the hospital. Oftentimes, especially for rural agencies, the amount that the state was compensating our colleagues may not have paid the diesel fuel uh, or the gasoline for the ambulance to get the patient to the hospital and and return to their stations. And and there had not been increases even despite our request, despite our explanations of the instability that this was causing within the EMS industry. The the idea of a co-op came about, and I cannot tell you who brought that idea particularly to the table. Maybe we'll we'll defer to Brett uh, for that. But basically what the co-op did is allows for EMS agencies to pay a fee to the state, uh, which, is, which is then leveraged against federal dollars that allows the state then to increase the amount of funds we receive in Medicaid dollars. By doing that, you know, most agencies saw a net increase, a significant net increase in their Medicaid funding for the first time in, in what had been about a 20-year period. While it sounded simple to do that, really it wasn't costing the state anything. In fact, my understanding is the state MDHHS uh, received some funding as well to administrate administer this program because, in fact, we did it. It wasn't so much that we were receiving incredible pushback to try to accomplish this. It was simply making people understand at not only the legislative level of government, but within the state departments, that this was going to be a win for everybody who participated. And a couple times, just about as we thought we'd reach the goalpost, we would deal with things like term limits, which, uh, you know, Brett talks about oftentimes when we'd suddenly have a change in the guard and we would have to go back and re-educate, you know, new legislators and their staffs and, and new members of, uh, of state government and department heads to say, everybody was in agreement with this before, we just need you to agree with it again to keep this process moving forward. So overall, you know, I think we were given a great program by Brett and our predecessors, and all we had to do was uh, go 
from the red zone, if you will, and get it pushed over the uh, finish line. Thanks, Jeff. So for everybody, for all the EMS agency leaders who are listening today, if you are not familiar with the QAP, it is a fee of $3 and some odd cents per transport that is returned to you in the form of a 20% increase on your Medicaid reimbursement rates. And that new fee schedule took effect July of 2018. I'm going to sidetrack for just a second, Jeff, because when I was listening to you just now, you you have a flair for, for speaking and taking things over the goalposts. And I, I I wanted to let everybody know that not only are you famous for appearing on our podcast, but you, sir, have a MERS quote of the day under your belt. And that is something that Brett and I will both attest to. That is something that everybody that works in downtown Lansing aspires to do. How does that make you feel? Uh, like you should double my uh, my salary from last year uh, for, for what I do for Moss, which, uh, by the way, is we all serve as volunteers, so my salary is currently zero. I was excited to hear it, but not being a Lansing insider, just being somebody who kind of speaks from the heart with regards to the EMS issues. Frankly, I didn't know what MERS was before the morning after my testimony when I started receiving calls from my state legislators, by the way, sharing with me that they had seen this and what an honor this was to kind of have this quote. So that was kind of interesting as well as uh, getting calls, I think, from both you and Brett, uh, you know, congratulating me on my remarks. And really, uh, like I say, it just had to do with speaking from the heart and, uh, you know, with regards to something I was passionate about and somebody picked up on that. So I guess uh, I guess when you're trying to do the right thing, sometimes people notice. It was definitely a win for Moss, too. And I will tell you that it's not just about having the MERS quote of the day, but you are a fantastic advocate for EMS. You're a fantastic advocate for Richmond Lennox EMS. You're a fantastic advocate for Moss. When this quote was taken, we were in the height of a pandemic and facing severe shortages of PPE, which, you know, is still an issue to this day. Do you remember the quote by any chance? It wasn't something that I had written down or intended to say uh, that day. But basically, you know, what we're trying to explain was that our staff uh, early on in this did not have the necessary PPE to protect them. We didn't even know uh, exactly uh, what we were dealing with uh, with regards to COVID. And certainly if you had asked us in March, if we thought we'd still be talking about it in October, we would have thought... uh, you know, heavens no. While I spoke, I compared our situation in EMS to uh, sending a police officer into an area where people are firing bullets without a bulletproof vest or sending a firefighter into a fire without turnout gear. Really, we were sending our paramedics and the EMTs at an invisible enemy and danger without the simple protective equipment that we would offer anyone else in public safety, a, a bulletproof vest or a turnout gear and an air pack to protect them. That is exactly right. And uh, let's actually talk about PPE right now. Recently, the Department of Health and Human Services announced uh, grants for PPE reimbursement, thanks to what I would call a good legislative win for Moz, which passed as Senate Bill 690 that included not only these grants for PPE, but it also included $1,000 hazard pay premiums for frontline EMS and, and other frontline employees, public safety employees. Talk about a little bit about that lobbying effort, you want to step in on that one? One of the things that we have to fight sometimes as EMS providers is the misconception that because we go to hospitals, because we go to nursing homes, because we go to offices, take patients, transfer patients, that we are part of the normal distribution of healthcare equipment. And so when PPE was very, very short early on, everybody just assumed that all the EMS agencies were taken care of, that we would show up at a hospital, we would show up at a facility, and we would be provided with that gear for 
for our employees. Obviously, that's not the case. And so we spent a good portion of that last part of March and April really walking the state through how we procure that and how we are kind of one of the unintended consequences in the supply chain for PPE within the healthcare system. And so we were able to talk to uh, legislators uh, in the House, Senate, and the governor's office as they were working on a supplemental for how that money goes out and how that gear goes out and is distributed. We're able to make sure that those EMS agencies you know, licensed under the public health code were part of the allowable recipient list. And that was something that was, it's not something we could ever have done in advance. Uh, nobody was prepared you know, for a pandemic as far as what that would mean for the supply chain for those types of materials. But it was something that because we had invested time in relationships with the right people in the House, Senate, and Governor's office, we were able to get to the decision makers and help turn that into a win for us and its members. Angela, if you don't mind, I just want to, you know, just kind of chime in, I, you know, and Brett certainly touched on it. I, I just can't reiterate enough. And I think this goes back, again, we keep reverting back to this theme of today of, you know, grassroots and getting people to listen and becoming their expert uh, for, for EMS related issues. Part of the issues, uh, you know, in some of that early legislation were out of no fault of anyone's outside of maybe some of the media that doesn't always get everything just correct. A lot of people believe that all EMS is provided, you know, by their local fire service or, or public agency. Now, I'm a public agency as well, but not a part of the fire service uh, currently. And sometimes legislation comes out that uh, I believe this was some of the case with 690 that was intended, you know, for I think everyone. But the way the language got worded, it, it initially may have only covered our colleagues that are government or within the in the fire service. And I think what we need to do a better job of as an industry is remind people that uh, no matter whose name is on the side of the ambulance, and whether that's owned privately or publicly or by a group of hospitals or other nonprofit arrangement, the men and women serving in, inside the cab of that vehicle and, and in the patient compartment uh, have the same level of dedication to their patient, face the same risk as anybody else. COVID doesn't seem to be able to tell the difference between a paramedic working for a private ambulance firm and a paramedic working in the fire service. Unfortunately, both have given their lives to COVID over this terrible period. And, and it was important for us as an industry to point out to our legislators that people working in any level of EMS needed the same, uh, not only protections, but hazard pay and other things that we were able to afford. It's a great point, Jeff. I, I really appreciate you bringing that to the forefront of our conversation today. Let's actually stay down that path just slightly. Advocacy isn't always done legislatively. There is a, a good portion of advocacy that actually has a public relations component to it that might have a, an administrative component to it, meaning our relationship with our uh, state licensing agency, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, particularly the EMS division. Now, part of your responsibilities as legislative committee chair is also to work closely with myself and with our other partners with the EMSCC, the Emergency Medical Services Coordinating Committee, and our representatives on that committee to follow things uh, through the EMSCC rules making, the administrative rules making process, and then even on a public relations campaign, either surrounding very specific components or to work on more broad programs, more broad issue areas. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that we've done recently that are non-legislative advocacy. The one that comes to mind a lot was a part 
partnership we actually did with MDHHS to talk about some of those stressors of COVID. People were staying home. Call volume was down dramatically. People were afraid to call 911 because they were afraid to go to the hospital, potentially be exposed to coronavirus. We saw as a state, as an industry, an increase in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital deaths. Talk a little bit about our advocacy efforts around that and what we did to bring attention to these issues and to encourage people to call 911. It was just that, uh, Angela. It was just getting the word out that it was safe to return to calling 911. By the way, it was never not safe to call 911. But certainly we understood that everybody was in fear of COVID and to some degree uh, still is. Unfortunately, our laser focus on the issue of COVID really did result in, as the cases of COVID went down, EMS response going back up. And, and what we were seeing was acutely ill patients who had waited out COVID with conditions at home that then ended up going to the hospital and and not always having a real good prognosis because, you know, they were so afraid uh, of COVID. And I spoke to a number of uh, groups and local community leaders during that time and said at one point that one of the safest places to be uh, was in your local emergency room because they were doing a great job of basically identifying and isolating COVID victims and putting them in an area of quarantine within their own facilities to ensure that when you walked in there, a little different than Kroger or, or the local grocery, where you might walk in and not know, you know, who's standing next to you. In the hospital ED, they had those patients separated into, in, into other areas. So it really was always very safe. We just had to get the message across that, that it was safe to call 911. It's, it was safe to go to the, the emergency department. It was safe to take care of, you know, your other underlying conditions and, and not end up at home with chest pain for a week until it got so so severe that there was little that could be done uh, even when you got to the hospital because the damage to your heart had become so bad. I know there was a number of statistics uh, and studies put out uh, that showed the, you know, the increase in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you know, early on in the COVID in the COVID crisis. And I think in the hot wash of all this, when when all is said and done and we're able to look back at COVID and, and see the very positive things that were done to, to protect the public uh, and to see the, you know, the negative impacts it had, you know, we're going to see that there was a number and negative impacts, whether it was uh, with regards to heart attacks, whether it was in regards to increases in opioid use and, and addiction, whether it was in response to increased use of alcohol and us seeing more domestic violence kind of situations uh, from people being at home. I think we're going to find that while there were and continue to be a lot of very positive things going on in the area of COVID prevention, I think we're going to find that some of the negative things that went on uh, will need to handle better uh, in the future. Even this morning, you know, I wear my pink today, which everybody can't see, uh, I guess, on, on a podcast for breast cancer awareness. You know, I saw that uh, mammograms are down 52% over last April because uh, women apparently are in fear of going in and getting their uh, routine screening. And, and that in itself will also take lives. And so so those are the things that I think we all need to continue to advocate for and, and ensure that we're, that we're looking at public health as a greater issue than just one uh, single disease. Jeff, I am too wearing my pink today, which nobody can see. So I think that's a very important statistic
statistic that we make sure that we share and one that I had not heard yet. So thank you for sharing that. I'm going to jump right off the diving board into the deep end and I'm going to talk about the elephant in the room in October of an election year. And that is an election that we have coming up. I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about the election on the national scale, but what do we have to look forward to in here in Michigan on November 3rd? Chaos. I'm going to be pretty blunt with that. We will not have results on November 3rd. Those results will pour over deep into November 4th. The sheer reason is, is just the volume of absentee ballots that are going to be cast this year in Michigan and Michigan's rules for how you can count those, when you can count those, and the restrictions for when those get counted. The House and the Senate, the governor struck an accord where basically absentee ballots in clerk's offices at your city, county, township, wherever they're being counted, are going to be allowed to be opened but not tabulated the day prior to election day. Uh, So once election day starts, they can begin that process. This year, there have been requested already 2.6 million absentee ballots, and that just is going to have a trickle-down effect to your local state house races because a lot of these races are decided by less than 1,000 votes. There will be a number of them this year that will be decided by 100 votes or less. If that's the case and you have to wait for the absentee ballots to be counted, you're not going to know control of the Michigan House until probably 24 to 48 hours after the polls close on November 3rd. So obviously we have a uh, presidential race. Former Vice President uh, Joe Biden is up significantly on the current president, Donald J. Trump. He will stay engaged in Michigan, even though he's up anywhere from eight to 10 points. And the reason being is Joe Biden doesn't want to just be president of the United States. He wants to make sure he has a Democratic controlled U.S. Senate. And Gary Peters, one of our current senators, Democrat, uh, is up for re-election this year and is in a much closer race with uh, Republican challenger John James. Because of that, the Biden campaign will continue to spend through Election Day to make sure that they can bring Gary Peters back. What that also does is puts pressure further down the ballot on the congressional side. The only race you've got in Congress that's worth really even noting is uh, his longtime Republican Congressman Fred Upton is facing a pretty serious challenge from his Democratic challenger, current state rep John Hoadley. That race will be very close just through shifting dynamics. And within that district, it's a very highly educated district over there. A lot of Republican voters in that district are not supporters of President Trump. And the question is, is even though they may not vote for President Trump, do they come back for John James and a Fred Upton further down the ballot? State House right now is at 58-52, essentially with Republican control. There are a number of open seats that Republicans hold currently that will most likely flip, mainly being those in Oakland County, which has been trending Democratic over the past decade or two. So that that race will be very close. Those races uh, will be decided, like I said, early on the 4th, uh, some later into the 4th as well, honestly. That'll determine control of the House. Luckily, Moss has good relationships with both sides for uh, whoever's going to be House Health Policy Chair uh, or the next speaker. Uh, Michigan could face, for the first time ever, and see a female speaker. Uh, if the Democrats uh, end up taking control, Donna Lisinski, Democrat out of Washtenaw County, is their presumptive leader and would be the first female speaker for the state. So that would be something uh, rare to see in Michigan or new to see in Michigan. The only other two things that are really on the ballot this fall, there's the Supreme Court race, uh, which we watch. Moss is rarely, but sometimes involved in litigation that goes before the Supreme Court. Uh, so we do watch that. And then there are two ballot questions that are that are really very straightforward. One dealing with the Natural Resources Trust Fund.
one, another dealing with unlawful searches of electronic devices, essentially. Both those questions were put on the ballot by uh, the legislature in the past two years and uh, should pass overwhelmingly. That's great, Brett. Thank you. That was a lot of information. Let's steep dive a little bit. The House of Representatives is 58-52 Republican to Democrat. There is a potential that that flips and the Democrats take control. Potentially, uh, Representative Lisinski takes over as Speaker of the House. Do you anticipate Maz's legislative priorities or advocacy efforts change should the House flip? Obviously, our our agenda is pretty nonpartisan. We try to pick issues that don't really have an R or D lean to them. Now, we may message things a little differently to each one and, and change around our talking points a little bit from time to time. But I do think the one that would probably get a little more attention next year is something that we've been pushing, but it hasn't been quite right for prime time. And that is, how do we really tackle the employee shortage that all the MOS agencies are facing? And the governor announced a program earlier early on during this pandemic while trying to help frontline workers uh, move on to different careers. Uh, We are in the middle of that trying to help educate people that EMS is a career. It is not a place that you just come and you learn a trade and then you move on to a hospital. Obviously, that does happen. We lose a lot of employees there. But I think under a Democratic House, we'll probably be able to push that message a little harder because we'll have the governor's office pushing on that as well. And you won't have that natural tension. Now, we'll have to then also message that to the state Senate, which will remain Republican control because they're not up for election this fall. But it would put us in a little bit different position to put a little more pressure on the, the governor's agenda to help try and get people into EMS as a career. Jeff, let's talk about some of those priorities moving forward. Brett just mentioned recruitment and retention being one of them. What do you see as the important priorities for or MAS for individual EMS agencies and even potentially for your road crews and your other employees for the next year, two years, five years? Brett did a nice job job. We've, uh, I think all of us in the industry have, uh, where he provides us tremendous uh, education on uh, the area of legislation and how to deal with our legislators and how to deal with, you know, departments in Lansing. We've all been able to provide him some education about, you know, what our true issues are and how our people have to work and under what conditions. And so I I think maybe post-COVID, the single biggest crisis in EMS will continue to be the biggest crisis we had prior to COVID. And that will be uh, recruitment, retention, and staffing. Right now, uh, we are no different than the rest of the nation, but uh, here in Michigan, we have a terrible shortage of uh, of paramedics and, and EMTs. Uh, we have some of our rural members, even board members, that literally join our board members these days via Zoom from the cab of their ambulances because, you know, they're not only having to deal with their, their local billing issues and their local uh, issues of their local units of government and their local hospitals, but they're also having to, you know, go out on the ambulance uh, daily because they can't find enough paramedics to do that. I'm reminded of a recent board meeting where where we had an organization send us an email about this very issue. The director of that organization pointed out that he wasn't sure that he could be on the call because he had been up working on the ambulance all night the night before. So we can't continue to operate this way and and continue to provide the service that become accustomed to, that the public's become accustomed to, without sufficient people. And so what do you need for sufficient people? You need opportunities for training. You need opportunities to uh, maybe help reimburse or pay for portions of that training or otherwise subsidize it. Uh, You probably need some more recruitment efforts, maybe even in some of the underserved communities where we could be, you know, focusing on people who might not understand 
what a career in EMS would look like or how to get involved or, or really what it pays. Because frankly, there were many years, I've been doing this almost 40 years, and there was a time that EMS people weren't paid very well. Basically, if you had a, a weak mind, a strong back, and pay you a little over minimum wage to work a whole lot of hours in a week. Uh, having said that, we've come a long ways, and, and EMS wages match that of school teachers and other professionals that really do make a good living wage with good benefits, and you really can make a career. And we need to we need to make certain that we have the state behind us helping us to get that message out. We need to make certain that we have the funds to get that message out, uh, and we need to make sure we have the resources to provide that training. You know, I think that we really need to focus on. I think the other thing that we have to at least give consideration to is ensuring that we have, whether it's through reimbursement or, or other means, the funds to continue to pay our people a competitive wage going forward. The state really has the, the greatest effect on our Medicaid dollars that we get as an organization. And if we had you know, a house that uh, did flip to the Democrats, I think there might be an opportunity to have additional discussions about Medicaid funding. We talked about the QAP and, and the QAP was wonderful, but uh, you know, in using the statistics that Angela provided, the QAP provided us 20% over a 20-year period. That's about 2% a year. I would venture to say that a cost of doing business has increased quite a bit more than that. So the QAP really only brought us up to a, a level that isn't even where we we should have been and, and hasn't afforded us really any ability to share those dollars with our workforce. You know, having those discussions so that uh, so that we understand, or, or so that the public and and our legislators understand that we need the funding and support to ensure that we don't have a crisis in the EMS industry will be very important. Thanks, Jeff. Would you say that we are currently in a crisis as it relates to staffing? Absolutely. Yes. The, the, most agencies cannot find enough people. And, and even in the communities that are getting by right now, we say things and I'll, I'll use Macomb County uh, because I'm most familiar with that. Uh, that's where my agency is at. Uh, as an example, we, you know, we have 90 or 100 people in Macomb County, Michigan, that leave EMS every year just due to retirements uh, in the EMS uh, industry. Currently, the largest single provider of EMS professionals in the county is the Macomb Community County. They do a phenomenal job, actually, of training paramedics, and they actually train paramedics who can complete the National Registry, which is, the, you know, the, the real end game in all of those programs. The downside to that is they graduated, I believe it's 22 or 24 people last year. We're not even keeping up with the retirements in our county, let alone uh, the folks that might choose to go to nursing, you know, or go on back to school to become physicians or, or, or otherwise we're just not keeping up. And if that continues, uh, it's just unsustainable for our industry. Jeff, do you think that our current status in, in this pandemic brings attention to the to EMS as a career? And if so, how would you suggest that anyone listen to this podcast find out more information about joining the, joining the industry? Great question. You know, the nurses and doctors... Uh, I want to start by saying, and, and not to discount what they've done, the nurses and doctors have done a heroic job of taking care of the sick and injured during this. Uh, and they have received much deserved accolades for that. I'm not sure why it is that first response EMS especially has not seemed to have gotten those kind of recognitions, whether statewide, whether nationally. I don't have a good answer for that. Maybe Brett has some thoughts uh, in regards to that, or even you, Angela, but but I, I wish I had a good a, a good reason for that because I see the commitment that all of our staffs are making to ensuring the health and safety of the public. And imagine, if you will, for the public that might be listening, 
being told that your next assignment uh, at your workplace might be to get in the an enclosed space smaller than most closets at home with no ventilation in a patient that is coughing coronavirus and spending 20 to 50 minutes in that space with them during their transportation to the hospital. Our heroes beyond imagine, and it pains me at times that they're not uh, getting some of those those recognitions uh, that they should for for this uh, for this amazing uh, job that they've done. So I, I feel that they haven't, and 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 I wish they would. And I know that's not a that's not a recruiting uh, brochure for our jobs either. But I'll tell you, recently I had the opportunity to sit in on some interviews with some folks. A couple of the folks that we interviewed were were past military had past military experience. And those people are always amazing to me, you know, our veterans and, and folks who have served. Because when we ask them about those very questions about, you know, how do you feel about getting in the back of an ambulance with a patient with coronavirus, the kind of response we got was was phenomenal. It was, if not us, then who? And and I think that speaks a lot to the character of the people who do this. I think it's why I'm so proud to do it every day, you know, is to, is to work uh, alongside those kind of folks. And, and I think those are the things that we need to be impressing in order to improve this recruitment, you know, in our, in our industry. This really is, you know, an industry heroes and and we need more folks to step up and do it. Thank you, Jeff. I don't think I've heard truer words about the dedication and the love of the career from our frontline EMS teams across the state. So I appreciate those thoughts. I think one thing I'd like to also stress, Moss doesn't just work with the legislature or the governor's office, that the, the legislative side of things is sometimes the sizzle. Uh, we talked about that a little bit earlier when we were dealing with perhaps the opioid crisis piece um, and some of the issues we dealt with there. But we also work a ton, as you had mentioned earlier, with with the EMS division, but then also we were lucky to have last year uh, Director Robert Gordon from DHHS be our speaker at the annual meeting back in December, back when we used to be able to gather in large groups like that. But, you know, there's not a day that goes by that Angela or I aren't in contact with DHHS leadership and trying to help figure out where they're going and also, honestly, to help educate them on some of the internal biases they may have on EMS. People sometimes come in from a hospital setting and take EMS for granted, and we're constantly trying to overcome that on behalf of MASA's members. So I just, I thought it was important for us to make sure that we stress that we've got a strong relationship with DHHS, their leadership team, and the career people there as well. Thanks, Brett. That's a very good point. I, I appreciate the fact that you uh, brought that up today. Jeff White, EMS Chief from Richmond and Lenox Townships. Brett Marr from much more Harrington Smalley. Thank you for joining me today. Everybody listening, we appreciate you taking the time. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to visit us at miambulance.org slash podcast for all of our episodes and information on upcoming ones. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast, the go-to source for information about Michigan's EMS system. Be sure to visit miambulance.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access other important information from the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services.